Well, let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bring thanks to you for your word. It's true and living and it speaks to the very dividing point between soul and spirit. So please help us as we come to this text. It's not difficult to understand, it's just difficult to do as we hear what Jesus said and we try and understand his words in the context of what he's been speaking about. We pray that you would help us, help me, uh, to speak clearly and accurately so that we all might be built up in uh, this wonderful grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, as we come to this text this morning, Matthew 18, uh, verses 15 to 20, I have to begin with an observation that will lead to an apology. My observation is that I've never preached on this text before. And that leads to that apology that's related to that. I am sorry that I haven't preached on this before, for your sake and for mine. Because the text itself and what it teaches us is something we should all not only know, but put into regular practice. Having said that, at least this morning we'll get down to it. Now we've been in Matthew chapter 18 for these last three Sundays, and without wanting to go over every detail of what's been before us, I do need to put our text this morning into context so that it doesn't become a pretext for anything. You might remember that the chapter begins or began with the disciples asking Jesus, who is the greatest? And the first verses are devoted to how Jesus answered their question by placing a child in their midst and saying something like, look here, here's greatness in the kingdom of God. Here's humility. Here's simple faith. He did that, of course, to challenge the way in which greatness is measured so that even though you may be small and insignificant in the eyes of the kingdom of this world, even yet you can be great in the kingdom of God, the kingdom that really counts. And then in verses that followed, verses 7 to 14, and Jesus went on to point out that if you're aiming to be great in his kingdom by following that path of childlike humility, then you'll need to be on the ball about a couple of things, especially as it relates to others around you in the sense of not being a stumbling block to them. And you will also need to be like his father, in the compassion stakes so that you too care about and care for that one lost wandering sheep. And you will if you have that heart of humility, if you swallow your pride and live a life, a humble life. 
Now all this is vital for our text this morning and I hope to show you that in moving on to these things that he taught next, Jesus is, is being entirely logical and isn't suddenly diverting into some new topic. Stay with me, let me explain it this way. First, let me catch everything that Jesus has said in verses 1 to 14 about being humble and caring enough not to be a stumbling block to others and caring for others under this general heading, self-discipline. Self-discipline. This often neglected aspect of Christian discipleship is a vital garden bed for the growth of genuine humility and leads to these two fruits. Care for others and having a heart that's compassionate towards others. Self-discipline. We're on the first point. Thank you. I want you to reevaluate then everything Jesus has said in verses 1 to 14 in this light. All that he has said to do with the need that you and I have as disciples of his to avoid pride, the very opposite of humility is couched in terms of you need this. You need self-discipline. To avoid thinking of ourselves in terms of greatness and therefore allowing pride to become care- to cause us to become careless about the way we live and hard-hearted towards those who seem insignificant, we need self-discipline. Self-discipline is needed and this quality is understood in this context as swallowing your pride as you enter the kingdom of God like a child and then living a life where that pride is continually swallowed. Self-discipline. Now, you know as well as I do that the words discipline and disciple go hand in hand. They surely not go hand in hand. They are also connected so strongly they are also hard work. Think about that. Discipline and disciple. Hard work. Self-discipline is no thing that's easily mastered. And neither is discipleship. They both involve dying to self and swallowing pride and they both need to be put into practice on a daily basis. Now if verses 1 to 14 in our text this morning all form one thread, then in verses 15 to 20 these can be understood as an extension of self-discipline, as Jesus moves on from this to two other kinds of discipline, to mutual discipline, that is to say, the kind of discipline we need to exercise over one another, and then to church discipline, that is to say, the kind of discipline that the elders of the church are called to exercise within the family of God, even though as we do that, look at these verses... There's no way I'll be able to say everything that could and should be said. So note the flow from self-discipline to mutual discipline and then to church discipline. So secondly, from verses 15 to 17, 
Let's see what Jesus tells us about mutual discipline. And in addressing this, Jesus gives the answer to one of the most difficult aspects of life inside the kingdom. And it happens when one or more of us doesn't want to swallow our pride or isn't able to practice self-discipline. And the fruit of conflict is created. Not just the conflict that is the ordinary run-of-the-mill kind of conflict in which love covers over a multitude of sins, not the kind of conflict that can be resolved by James's quick trio of commands, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, but the kind of conflict that can exist that is deep-seated, ongoing, hurtful and damaging to the witness of the church. Maybe even conflict that has come about because as disciples we too can get caught up with that question of greatness and wrongly imagine ourselves at the forefront like those 12 disciples did. Well, to start us off in that quest of understanding mutual discipline, let's note the metaphors that Jesus has used so far and notice that they've changed in verse 15. In verses 5, 10, 14, you'll pick up that same expression, little ones. This is the term that he's used over and over to remind us that in his kingdom, some may be up near the top, in terms of status, others might be lower down near the bottom, but this self-discipline will ensure that those near the top will consider the little ones beneath them with care. But now in verse 15, the metaphor changes and it becomes brothers. Now it's one thing to love a little one It's one thing to love a lost sheep, but it's another thing to love a brother, especially when that brother has offended you. Little ones don't offend. Lost sheep are truly cute, but brothers are a different story. And I think it's telling that Jesus uses the term brother because our tendency, especially when we're offended, is to view those who hurt us as not being family, but as someone who is not one of us. But if we are in the kingdom and a brother or a sister offends us, then that brotherly relationship trumps all. And you know too that no matter how your earthly brother or sister behaves towards you in particular, they are still your brother and your sister. Sometimes you may wish that they cease to be so, but they never ever do. And so in the kingdom, this applies in an even greater sense. Remember Jesus said that whoever does the will of God is my father, mother, brother, sister. We are family. 
We are family. So with mutual discipline in mind, Jesus teaches how he wants his disciples to respond when one of us has grieved another. There are steps. You can see some of these steps on the screen, which I think is very helpful. First of all, that Jesus, let's notice that Jesus urged going privately to the person who has offended us. Now, if the offence had been public, it wouldn't necessarily make sense to go in private to deal with the matter because the matter would already be publicly known. But if the offence was a private offence, then a private response is called for. In other words, you ought not announce it to your small group. You ought not put it down the prayer chain. But you go privately to the one that has offended you. There are other texts that deal with offences that are of a public nature. But this refers to something done in private. And we must respond by keeping it in private. Not in terms of covering it up, but in terms of seeking to resolve the matter without causing public shame or embarrassment. Next step, Jesus teaches that if we've been offended after going to them privately, we must show them the offence. In other words, tell them what they've done. That is, explain with all humility and love what the person's actions or words or lack of actions or lack of words has done to you. Now this is a very hard thing to do. But Jesus is telling us to do this not to encourage us to get one up on the other but for the good of the other. Going in private gives the offender opportunity to acknowledge the hurt and apologise, thus closing the case, so to speak. People cannot apologise for something they don't know that they've done. But keep this in mind here, that going to them is for their good. If they have offended you, they may have offended others. They may be guilty of causing little ones to sin. They may not have a heart like the shepherd has for the lost sheep. And so they may need to straighten things out with God, let alone others. The main concern is with the spiritual welfare of the offender. Yes, you heard right. You get offended. What do you do? Think about the spiritual well-being of the one who offended you. Think about them. The third step in there is then this. If the offender will not acknowledge his fault or sin or offence, you've gone to them in private, you've said this is what's happened, they won't acknowledge it, they won't confess it, then take witnesses and repeat the process again. Perhaps the offender will not see or confess their wrong. The private meeting for reconciliation falls flat. Witnesses are therefore needed, not people you are taking to be on your side and you're going along, they're going along to watch you clobber them over the head. Witnesses are not produced in order to escalate the process but to resolve the process, 
reminding you to double-check if this alleged offence that you feel grieved about is really serious enough to take the next step. And that next step is found in verses 17 to 20, which take us to the realm of church discipline. If taking witnesses does not resolve the issue and the offender remains unrepentant, then Jesus says that the one who is offended against must take the matter to the elders of the church, tell it to the church, meaning the elders, in attempt to bring resolution. And if that fails, then such discipline will have the effect of the offender being treated as an outsider, as an unbeliever. Now, escalating the discipline process like this would not be viewed as an act of hate or unkindness. The purpose of escalating it to this level is for the restoration of the offender. The idea is that people acting as non-brothers should become brothers again. It's in their best spiritual interest to have the matter addressed rather than let it lead them to eternal loss. Remember what Jesus said last week about hands and feet? That if they cause you to sin, cut them off. But any, escalating any offence like this is hard going. Some of us would rather not raise a concern about another to their face while others of us might be more ready to confront the situation and see it resolved. But if it can't be resolved by any of these steps of going in private, of showing the offence and taking witnesses, this next step is called for and required. Now these verses don't give a complete picture about church discipline, what it's all about. Because we all, all we have here is the conclusion to the process in verse 17. Tell it to the church and the resultant, if he does not listen to the church, then treat him as a Gentile. Now there's a lot to unpack here, but I want you to note two things. That the church, that is the elders of the church, must handle matters brought to them for adjudication in church discipline. And two things they have to keep in mind. For a start, they need to keep in mind the promise of Jesus. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. What you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Jesus says this because the church is the earthly instrument for the heavenly rule of Jesus in the hearts of his people. Through elders vested with spiritual authority. Jesus' words here speak of binding and loosing, which are drawn from the law court. Binding referring to the idea of condemning. Loosing referring to the idea of acquitting. A prisoner who is bound, who is not yet freed, is it still at least, under the suspicion of the court, if not under the open condemnation of the court. But a prisoner who is loosed is considered innocent and free in the light of that court. And so this language of binding and loosing refers to the action of the elders of the church when they joyfully admit members into the fellowship of the church and when they sadly and regretfully have to dismiss members 
from the fellowship of the church. And this passage speaking of the elders' authority of binding and loosing is a warning for those of us who will not swallow their pride that Jesus gave the elders the authority to call them to account where that is needed. Now this is very solemn stuff and it's good to put it out there publicly but not as a warning to anyone in particular this morning but to all of us in general. It's not that we elders are on the lookout to discipline anyone as quickly as we can. But Jesus says, if that is required for the sake and the health of the flock, it must be done. But then also in the terms of this discipline, elders are to be encouraged not just by the promise of Jesus but by the presence of Jesus. He says, if two or three of you on earth agree about anything, they may be asked, shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, Jesus is not giving us a magical formula here whereby you and I can get anything we want. And he's not saying either that this in relation to the context of worship as people so often assume. But his presence here is his presence in the process of church discipline. It's in that context where the elders are dealing with the matters about the peace and the purity of the church that Jesus is present. He assures them that the Father will hear their prayers and that he will be present with them. Now, for those of us who are elders, this ought to be a a tremendous encouragement whenever we are called upon to handle issues of conflict or dispute or prevailing sin that needs to be confessed or rebuked. An elder's task is no bed of roses. But we have this promise of Jesus to remind us that we do not carry out these tasks alone. Note again verse 19 when Jesus says, if two of you, two of you agree on anything, sorry, agree on earth about anything they ask. Note the context. Who are the two or three? Are they the Presbyterians at the 2.30 service? No, they're the witnesses in verse 16. Witnesses in the Old Testament who were called upon to confirm the facts in a capital crime. Now, isn't that telling what Jesus says here? While in the Old Testament the witnesses were the first to execute the penalty for the crime, here they are the first to pray for the offender because the desire of the church is to see the forgiveness and the reconciliation and the restoration of the straying sinner. In the Old Testament, they're the first to cast the stone. In the New Testament, they're the first to lift up hands in prayer. There is something enormously significant about that, isn't there? The importance of our prayer meetings together and praying together is highlighted by this, underlining just how important praying together is for the sake of the unity of the church and the progress of the gospel.
In concluding, let me speak openly. I hate conflict. I hate it. Mutual accountability is hard. It's hard for husbands and wives to be accountable to each other. It's no fun being admonished. When I've wronged my wife, I instinctively know it and I can feel the admonition coming before it's delivered. It's no fun. But for me to ignore the wrong and not swallow my pride does nothing to bring that oneness and unity that we have and want to keep in our relationship. It only creates a wedge which keeps both of us from experiencing the unity of the spirit that is part of God's design in marriage. Yet in this fallen world, conflict is going to come in marriages. Every marriage is now outside the Garden of Eden in a fallen world. And conflict will come in businesses, between workers and bosses, in families, between parents and children. And as the boss or the HR manager or the parent or the pastor, you don't want to have to be the person to enforce discipline. But you also know for the sake of that child or that department or the rest of the family or the church family, it's so necessary. It would be easier to deny it, to pretend like it's not happening, it's not there, but that without it nothing will change and the consequences of not doing it are so much greater. It's just the same in the church. We are family. We all have the same father. We all share the same spirit of God. We're all brought together into one body and our God delights in that unity and he wants us to be shepherds of each other. Just shepherds of the little ones, but shepherds of our brethren. And he wants us to be caring for each other and forgiving each other freely because we want to point each other to Jesus who not only taught us to do that, but also went to the greatest extremes to do that for us. He forgave us. And so the answer to conflict lies deep within the cross. For if he so did that for us, then surely we are free to do that for one another. And Paul says in Colossians, Therefore put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. May God help us to have a heart like that and to do just that with one another. Let's pray.
Our gracious Father, we once again thank you. Last week we thought about how the lost sheep was rescued by the giving of the shepherd who gave his life for that sheep and for all his sheep. And today we thank you that you've brought us, all of us, who profess faith in him through the cross to not only have our sins forgiven but also to give us grace that we might forgive the sins of others. We acknowledge that there are times when we are in conflict with one another. We're sorry about that. We're sorry that this world is so full of conflict when we think about it on a national level with nations in conflict with nations. But in this matter before us this morning, we want to keep short accounts. We don't want to have to go down this path that Jesus said might be needed, is necessary, when one perhaps does not swallow their pride. Help us not to be that person, but in humility acknowledge our own imperfections and the imperfections of others so that love will cover a multitude of sins. Lord, give us courage and skill when we are offended to put things right with one another so that we may also preserve the unity of spirit in the bond of peace, as Paul said. Grant us these things, especially as we think about next week, how Jesus told a parable to remind us just how much we've been forgiven and that we cannot withhold that forgiveness from others. So deal with us in these difficult matters, we pray. Grant us understanding that we might be self-disciplined as disciples of our Lord and Saviour. We pray in his name. Amen.